Uh, we're going to be in Acts tonight, uh, chapter, end of chapter 6, the start of chapter 7. Get my glasses. Evidently, I don't see well. So, we, you know, we talked about um, last week setting aside some guys, and one of them is Stephen. We enter into a period now where we're going to deal for a few weeks, we'll be with Stephen. But the book of Acts now is a book of constant movement, constant things going, shifting, changing, going in a certain direction. What's going to happen now is there's going to be four people that are going to come onto the scene. And there's, there's connections between them to a different degrees. And those four people are going to lead us to the back half of the book of Acts, where we begin to see the Gentiles reached in great numbers. The first guy is Stephen, uh, who is going to make an impassioned a defense of the gospel, and in doing so, and he forfeits his life, but begins then to, to create the necessity for the church to begin moving out. His impassioned defense will also have the impact on a guy who was there named Saul, who eventually we know to be Paul. In chapter 8 as well, it'll be Philip the Evangelist. Both Philip and Stephen were mentioned in that group of five, a uh, group of seven, I'm sorry, in chapter 6. He is connected to Stephen, and he is the one who actually kind of kicks off a little bit of going beyond the Jews as he goes to the Samaritans. And then he leads uh, a man from Africa to faith. With that in mind, Saul, known as Paul, will become a believer on chapter 9, connected both to um, Stephen and then to Peter, who becomes the focal point in chapter 10. As Peter then, as I preached about this um, a few weeks ago, Peter begins and goes into uh, the home of a Gentile named Cornelius, and he actually really kicks off the movement to the Gentiles that begins reaching them that Paul will take over. Paul and Peter will have numerous interactions, we know from the Gospel of, of I'm not from the Gospel, we know from Galatians and from the book of Acts. And in many ways, as you read Acts, you realize the focal point becomes Paul as he begins to lead the Gentile movement. So what we're going to see in the next few weeks is Stephen's speech a little bit and set it up. If you've ever read the book of Acts, the part I hate reading the most is the seventh chapter. It's Stephen's speech uh, to the Jewish ruling council. We'll see some of it this week, some of it next week. But it's really important if you break it down. It's just a re it's kind of, a, it's always like, well, it's just a rehash of the Old Testament. No, really. What it is, is it's a defense of what's going on to show that God is moving. So we come to the end of chapter 6, and I'll do about the first third of chapter 7 tonight. Chapter 6, verse 8 says, And Stephen. Now Stephen was one of the ones set aside to the distribution of the Greek-speaking, or the, the, the Greek-speaking uh, Jewish women, Christian women. And Stephen, full of most says grace and power was performing great wonders and signs among the people. We don't really think about it much, but it wasn't just the apostles, but also some of the other guys who did amazing things. Now, he has both the grace of God and the power of God. We don't know what the signs and wonders were. Um, it, probably was, it probably indicates the miraculous, but certainly he was doing things that were impactful. He was having so much impact in and around the area of Jerusalem. It says in verse 9, but some men from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, with some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. So there is a synagogue, a, a place where the Jews met. Uh, the idea that it's the synagogue of the freedmen leads some to believe that it was a synagogue. And different synagogues, like different churches, you know, we always think the synagogues were all the same. There weren't there were lots of different synagogues. And just like churches today, certain people tended to come together in certain synagogues. 
And most likely, these were men who were Jewish with their families, who had at some point in the Roman system been enslaved or in some sort of servitude, and through some process gained their freedom, which was always possible. And uh, they came to Jerusalem, and they had a synagogue there. And there were certain other people, and they, they, oh, they list some of the places they came from or where they were there. Some think it may be different groups, but it, it, maybe it's just one group, and it doesn't really matter. But there was a, a movement against Stephen. They began to argue with him. And what they were arguing about was Jesus. And notice what it says in verse 10. They were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Earlier on, we saw in chapter 6 that the apostle said, select seven men full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit. And here you see, they were not able to cope with that. There is tremendous value in our lives of letting the Holy Spirit guide us and of seeking to have some degree of wisdom. Wisdom, and, and I've talked about this and touched on this before some last week, but so oftentimes wisdom comes with some degree of experience. You ever heard someone say, well, they're wise beyond their years, which is balanced by people who are foolish beyond their years, I might add. Wise beyond their years just indicates that somewhere along the line, they've gained experience. And when you take as a believer that I am gifted by the Holy Spirit, and I do the things, the basic things, I'm, I'm praying, I'm, I'm you know, studying the scriptures, I'm, I'm loving people, I'm helping people, I'm ministering. And as I begin to experience life and begin to let the Holy Spirit work through me in the experience of life, I begin to obtain some degree of wisdom. Now, certainly, you know, there, there are some people seem to do better in certain areas than others, and I get it. One of the things that I, that I look for always in, um, in certain positions in church um, is this Holy Spirit and wisdom. That doesn't mean if you're not in a certain position, you don't have it. There's a certain skill set involved. And some people have a lot of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit that don't want to get that involved. So don't, don't think, well, he's never asked me to do anything. He must not think I'm very bright or know what I'm doing. Well, possibly, but not necessarily. Okay? <laughs> some of you, that would be true. But, you know, there's, there's other factors involved. Maybe I don't know you well, or maybe there's certain things in the church that require certain skill sets um, or some, a, a certain type of experience that you don't have where your experience and your wisdom uh, in your Holy Spirit-filled life are invaluable in other areas. Listen, the single most important places to have people who are full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit is working with our children and our young people. That's the most important place to have that. Uh, people who are leading connect groups or are working connect groups. That's, that's where we want people mostly full of the Holy Spirit and with wisdom to be able to help them through life, to give guidance, to be able with their connect groups to deal with tough situations and uh, to teach a little bit. And so we value that in, in all sorts of areas. And so that's why that becomes important. And I think one of the goals all of us should have in life is to grow in our faith and then to be available for the Lord to use us. I think mostly what you have to realize about Stephen is he was available. I don't think Stephen went looking for confrontation. I think confrontation found him. Now, some people go looking for a fight, which is ridiculous. I had never understood that. I try not to get involved, and if I have to get involved in an argument, so be it. 
that because he was sharing the gospel, arguments arose. I mean, cause of what I do, sometimes people want to argue and have discussions. All right, depending on what it is, if they're open to hearing what I have to say or the truth or discussing it, fine. If they just want to argue for the sake of arguing, I'm like, yeah, whatever, you win, and I'll walk away because I really don't care that much. But what's important is finding people you can connect with. Now, because this was a synagogue, and these guys had a lot of influence, Stephen most likely felt the necessity to confront them and to try in an effort to help the believers of this synagogue. Evidently, he was working with the synagogue. Evidently, he was connected with them in some way. And so this came about. And so the, the men were getting nowhere with him. They couldn't, they couldn't do anything. They were unable to cope. So here's what they did. They began to slander him. Levin says, they secretly, under the cloud of darkness, you know, privately, they began to gossip. They induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So, understanding the Jews and what mattered to them. Obviously, God mattered. But secondly, was Moses, because they built everything on the law of Moses. They built everything on the Exodus, on, on, on the temple, you know, um, on, on where, you know, sacrifices occurred, where they get the sacrifices from, from Moses, where they get the law from, from Moses. Moses was everything. So to speak ill of Moses was not as bad as speaking ill of God, but it was close. And so here you have the heart of everything about them, the relationship or the worship of God and the way they worship God, which was through Moses and what Moses taught in both the law and the sacrifices. But there's more than that. And they start up the people and the elders and the scribes. They, they, they got them riled up and they came to him and notice they dragged him away and brought him before the council. So you see this sense of violence. This is reminiscent a little bit of Jesus. The council would be the Sanhedrin, who already we've seen Peter and John before and who Jesus was before. And in verse 13, they put forward false witnesses, just like they did with Jesus, who said this man incessantly speaks against this holy place, that is the temple, and the law. So they went, they said, from Moses and God, and then they connected God uh, to the temple where you worship God, and then Moses to the law. And so they said, they're, they're, he, Stephen is speaking against this. Now, probably what, what they were doing was misquoting him and misapplying things, saying things like, you don't need the law to come to God. You know, the, the problem was they became Christians while they went to the temple. There's no reason to think they ever did the sacrifices anymore. And so they began to attack things that were true, but they would blow them out of proportion. They would maybe lie about it. They were, they were beginning to say things that were false in the way they presented it. And so that the Jews would get very angry, and they brought him before the Jewish ruling council to do something against this. Now, this is, this is not uncommon. You know, you take something that's a little bit true, and then you build a whole lot of false around it. That's what they were doing. That's what they were trying to accomplish. And so this begins an important battle that we're going to see uh, in the life of the church with Stephen. And, in, and this is a pretty big deal because when you're through with chapter 7 and, and, they, and they kill Stephen, and we'll see this next week, 
the church begins to disperse. All of those Jewish believers who were hung around Jerusalem that were from other areas started going home. And this, by the way, is the initial movement that began to get the gospel to the Gentiles because they would go to the places they came from, such as Rome, and they would go back home and they would start churches and they would appeal to both the Jews and Gentiles. And so this movement kind of begins. And this is an important thing there that's going on. I don't like to draw too many parallels to things we do that happens to us today because Let's face it, in America, none of us are going to get dragged before a council somewhere to defend Jesus and, and risk our life. I mean, I guess there's a time that could happen. It ain't happening now. But, you know, we still face those kind of person. You know, we still can face pressure and difficulties. But the most important thing for us is to see how the Lord is working, to see the movement of the things that are going on and see what's beginning to happen. But there's another thing that's important, and we'll see it in a minute. A lot of the stuff you're going to see in Stephen's story parallels a book that's written 35 years later called the book of Hebrews. When you come to the book of Hebrews and you see that Jews were thinking, I mean, Jewish believers were being tempted to go back to Judaism. And the author of Hebrews shows the superiority of Christ to the entire Jewish legal system. It is very similar to some degree what you're going to see here. When you're in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, and you see all the people of faith being mentioned, it is eerily similar to some of the things, you're, not eerily, but it is similar to some of the, the Halloween is still there, that's why I said eerily, see I got my system yet. It is similar to some of the things that you will see uh, in Hebrews chapter 11. Notice what it says in verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Nazarene, which is, a, which is like a slur, Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their glaze on Gazan, they stared at him. All who sitting at the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Now, so Luke is just describing what someone told him. So evidently, Stephen was at peace with whatever was, was being said. So as chapter 6 comes to a conclusion, he's now before the Jewish ruling council. We're going to move now and begin to see what he does and what he says which has importance. So in chapter 7, the high priest, which is most likely Caiaphas, said, are these things so? Caiaphas, when Jesus appeared before him, you know, he asked him, are you the Christ? You know, it, 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 Caiaphas, this is probably, we should assume that Caiaphas is still the high priest. Someone else could have been, but they all were part of the same family. You know, there was a, an unbelievable hatred from the high priesthood towards Jesus and then his followers. Such animosity and you begin to see this kind of battle begin here, this, this conflict come out and begin to make its way through. So he says, are these things so? And then, speak, and then Stephen begins an amazingly um, defense of his faith. It's divided really into three parts. Chapter 7, verses 3 through 16, he's going to talk about the patriarchs. In chapter 7, verses 17 through 40, uh, four, he's going to talk about Moses and the law, which he was accused of blasphemy. And then in verses 45 through 50, he is going to talk a little bit about the tabernacle and the temple. And then at the end of the chapter, things that happened to him. And he said then, hear me, brethren and fathers. So sign of respect, the God of all glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Now, he's going to use stuff from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, chapter 15, for other places. I'm not going to worry too much about where he quotes from. He's also, a lot of times, when you read, when you read in the New Testament, and they're quoting from the, the Old Testament, it's almost always quoting from the Septuagint. 
That is the Greek version of the Old Testament. That's what they used. You know, they didn't use the original language of the Hebrew. They used the Greek. That was common back then. So he, he begins by reminding them where Moses came from. I mean, where Abraham came from. He's not dealing with Moses. Not yet. He's going past Moses to Abraham. That was commonly what they did oftentimes. You know, the Jewish religious system was not built around Abraham. It was built around Moses. The promise for God's people was built around Abraham. But the, the religious system that was in place, they got from Moses and the law and all that. So common was to go past Moses to Abraham. And the reason for that is because everything happened with Abraham first. And in the Jewish way of teaching, in the Jewish way of looking at things, in the rabbinic way of looking at things, the older something was, the heavier it was, or it took greater precedence. So if you could find an older information about the Jewish life, it took precedence over newer. It's very similar to what we do in the New Testament. When we find documents, New Testament manuscripts or fragments that are older, they are given heavier weight than newer. If you can find something from the second or third century in the New Testament, and you have something in the seventh or eighth century, and, and there's a little bit of discrepancies, nothing major, but you know, grammar or, or the way things are worded, the normal thing to do is to give heavier weight to the older. It's closest to the original source. That makes sense. We all understand that. Any of you that's ever gossiped, you want to go to the person who started the rumor first because they probably started the rumor closer to what actually happened than when you repeat it in the fourth or fifth time. You know, it gets kind of like first like that. So he goes to Abraham. And here's what he said. He was called from Mesopotamia. That's, and remember, He's, he's referencing the fact that Abraham was a pagan. The fact that he came from Mesopotamia, he lived in Haran, he was not a worshiper of God. He was not a worshiper of Yahweh. God said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Now, he's emphasizing two things, the call of God, but he's also emphasizing movement. That at some point, Abraham had to leave what was common to him. He had to leave behind his religion. He had to leave behind his system. He had to leave behind his life. And there is movement towards God. That is the parallel that you are going to see, in essence, with his defense of the Christian faith. It is a movement away from the religious system of the Jews towards a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we always should understand that what we're asking, when we share the gospel, when I share the Christian faith, I am asking for someone to make a commitment, a decision. I'm asking for a movement in their life. I'm asking them to give their life to Jesus so that they will move away from their sin. They will move away from their old way of doing things, an old religion, an old custom, whatever, and move towards Jesus. Christianity is about repentance and following. Think of the words we use, repent. That is to turn away from sin and turn towards Jesus. Jesus says, follow me, come after me. It's always about movement. And one of the things that we really don't really pay much attention to, for, for a lot of reasons, just, you know, but in, in throughout the scriptures, and especially in the New Testament, we end up with Christianity being a movement. And I actually talk about it a lot of times in preaching about our movement, our faith is a movement. 
And, and, and I, when I did that series in the summer on Acts chapter 1 and 2, I talked all the time about the Christian movement. It was moving. It was going somewhere towards Jesus. So he says, leave, Abraham. Leave everything you have. And notice he says, you're going to go into a land. Early on, the promise was connected to a land. Abraham was a vagabond. He was a nomad. Verse 4, he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you're now living. Abraham moved here. But notice what he says. But he gave him no inheritance in it. In other words, he didn't give him any of it. Not even a foot of ground. Abraham had nothing. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after. So he said this, Abraham came here and he didn't own anything. But God said, all of this will be yours and I will give it to your descendants. The only problem is Abraham didn't have a descendant, much less many descendants. Now, important to realize that while we know this to be the descendants, which we would call the Jewish people, Ultimately, in the New Testament, we are told that the true children, and Jesus and both Paul, the true children of Abraham are the followers of Jesus, always. Jesus says this, that the true children of Abraham are the ones who, like Abraham, have faith. And faith comes in Jesus. The book of Hebrews makes that clear, that the church, the believers, are the true descendants of Abraham. So he said, they will possess the land. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be, notice this, aliens in a foreign land, and they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. So before that happens, they're going to Egypt, and that's where they're going to be. It didn't say Egypt, but that's all they knew, and they would be there for 400 years. Now, it's interesting because, um, and sometimes you read in places that they were in Egypt, you know, it says 430 years. Uh, gone to the Old Testament places. They were, they were captives for 430 years, and people, you know, kind of, they get all up in arms about what all it means. So let me just share this with you. Do you ever notice how many of the numbers in the Bible end in zero? You know why they do that? Same reason you do it. Because we tend to round up or down, and we, we give approximations. That's why. I'm, I'm not, I mean, numbers are important. I mean, I'm, let me just say this. So first thing I want you to say is, this seems a little far-fetched that the vast majority of numbers end in zero, you know. Unless it's a single-digit number, like three or seven, which are important. Now, I say that because I want you to understand, numbers matter. The number 40 is important. Uh, the number 12 is important. Um, something's important. So it may, may very well be that sometimes they, they round things up like a generation. So sometimes they will say, because they didn't necessarily, you know, you, we, we keep pretty accurate calendars, right? Some of you do anyways. In times when we mark how many things are off. A lot of things back then were approximations. Like, they didn't have watches to know what time it is. When the sun was high, it was sun. It was noonish. You know, when the sun rose, it was you know, daybreak. When it set, it was, you know, sunset. And, you know, the third hour of the day would have been the third hour after the sunrise. You know? And, and for us, you know, whatever hour that is. But the, and we know the sun rises at different times. They, they dealt in those kind of things. So oftentimes, they would talk about so many generations. And so they would take a number to represent a generation. And the important thing wasn't the raw number of years. It was the number of generations. So numbers matter. Don't get me wrong. 
The thing we need to remember, and this is so important, I was thinking about this today, I'm, I'm doing some stuff in Exodus for next summer, and I got to deal with a lot of stuff. We get too hung up on our understanding of things and not the author's intent. The inspired, infallible, inerrant, whatever words you want to use, connection to the Bible, the Old and New Testament, is based on the intent of the author not the understanding of the reader. Um, if the author was given, so, so you see this a lot of times, if the author's given an approximation, the intent isn't that you quote that number as being the gospel truth, and if we deviate it one iota, we're saying the scriptures aren't accurate. It's that you get what the author's saying. I say that because when you come here and it's, four, uh, it's 400 years, another place 430, and oh, how do you reconcile that? I don't worry about it because they both meant this thing. They both understood. You know what the emphasis is? They were in Egypt a long time. They were in Egypt about 400 years. Could have been 430. Maybe it was 418. I don't know. Depends on how you count. And remember, there's two different ways of counting back then. There's a Jewish way and a Roman way. That there's different. Sometimes when you look at the hour of the day, you got to know, are they talking about the way the Romans looked at the hours of the day or the Jews? Because it's not the same. You got to know if when they're counting days, are they doing it the Jewish way, which counts, you know, the first day is day one. And so it doesn't matter if it's, you know, 1159, you, you know, you were born 1159, you know, day one. You were, and then the next day is day two. You've been alive three minutes, but you've been alive two days. That's why when you go back and you see all the kings and the, all the years they served, I mean, some of them only served for a month, but it gets counted as a year. Sometimes three guys served in the same year. That's three different years get counted. And what I'm saying is you've got to understand all that. Don't sweat the little stuff because you've got to sweat the big stuff. They were held captive. That's what matters. And whatever nation to which they will be bondage, I myself will judge. God's going to judge them, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. So he's saying they're going to be in bondage. And they're coming back here. And he gave him this covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob with the 12 patriarchs. So he's saying this, you get all hung up on circumcision in the Old Testament law. Circumcision goes back to Abraham who had no law. What did Abraham have? Faith. That's all he had, man. He had God's word. He had faith. And so he says this circumcision, which in, throughout the New Testament is a huge stumbling point between Jews and Gentile believers. He said, you, you're tying it to Moses as a requirement of Moses. So if crying out loud, it goes back to Abraham. And it wasn't a requirement for salvation. It was a symbol of their faith. Hey, Abraham, believe God. Abraham, now that you believe me, you know what would be really cool? Not for you so much, but what you need to do is be circumcised. That's how we got the phrase, no pain, no gain. That is not true. <laughs> Verse 9, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph. The patriarchs, the big guys, right? The fathers became jealous of who? Joseph. So what they do? Your fathers, that you were so hung up on, sold him to the Egyptians. God was with him, and he rescued him from all his affliction that you guys caused. And granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his households. So what he's going to begin to do now is he's going to begin to show how the people the religious leaders associate with 
always acted in opposition with the people that God had set aside for his purpose. Now, you guys, man, you love, you love the 12 tribes. Oh, man, you're so proud that you're a part. I'm, part I'm, I'm from the tribe of Reuben. I mean, I know one ever brags about that, but let's just say they did. Yeah, yeah. So, Joseph, God's man, you sold him into slavery. Yeah, you guys did that. And you're constantly, all the people you associate with, all the movements that you associate with, your religious system is always working against God. It's going to culminate in Jesus. We'll see that next week. All right. Now, famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and a great affliction with it. And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there for the first time. Our fathers, he sold Joseph into Egypt. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known, and he revealed himself to his brothers. There's revelation. And Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. And from there they were removed to Shechem, and later the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamar and Shechem. So he's what he's saying. We, you, you, our forefathers moved against Joseph. And then God used Joseph to bring about getting them into Egypt. Where, by the way, we stayed all that time and allowed to grow as a nation so we can be this mighty nation who would go and take the promised land that was given to Abraham and then we would possess it as we do today. And in that part of all that, eventually our fathers went back. Abraham, the only thing he owned was a tomb, a place to be buried, really. And that's where they buried our father, Jacob. But the point that he's making through all of this is to, see, is to say, you guys are against Jesus, but you've always been against God's movement. You've always been against God's plan. But you know what God always does? He always makes his plan work. No matter how often you're against what God's doing, God finds a way to make what he's doing do it work. And you need to understand, you're fighting against God right now and everything that God stands for. When, you know, when you look at, our faith, and realize that most of Christianity has been a struggle against opposition, except for really American Christianity of 200 plus years. We've had it easy. And maybe that's the problem. Maybe we're in the shape we're in now because we've had it so easy, we forgot what it meant to really persevere for the faith. Maybe we forgot that. But when you realize that through all of this unbelievable persecution, God keeps moving forward. In the gospel, you, you would think that when the Romans, the most powerful, really empire probably that ever lived, now, I mean, when you take all the weapons and the ruthlessness, when they did everything they could, emperor after emperor for over 250 years, to destroy Christianity, and they failed. And you look at how Christianity, how Christians who were poor and impoverished for most of human history, except, again, Western civilization, and you look at the places where it's growing now, like China and in Muslim countries and in India, where they're persecuted and they're poor and they're nothing, that Christianity keeps growing. It tells me and gives me hope. God's, God's got, God is going to be victorious. We worry about America, and I got it. I understand why. We're Americans, I get it. But at the same time, we ought to be celebrating all the places where Christianity is growing. Christianity is not dying. It died in Western Europe. It didn't really die. It's ineffective because the church is closed. But Christianity keeps going. And one of the things I'm reminded about more and more 
is God doesn't need Western culture for the gospel to grow. He doesn't need us for people to come to faith. We need him to work in us so that we will be a part of the people who come to faith. When we work with these church planners, I realize God doesn't need us to help these church planners. But what I want to do is help these church planners so I can be doing what God's doing. You know, when Joe and I, we're going to go Monday to Montana to, work, to look at some new church plan opportunities for us. Our budget, you, approve, well, you will approve this Sunday, I should say, hopefully. We'll have a lot of money in there for helping church planners. That's not because they need us. It's because we need them. We need to be a part of what they're doing. We need to be a part of what God's doing. Find out where God is doing and go there. And with that, I'll see you in the business meeting at 7.15, and maybe we'll find out something God's doing. That's kind of cheesy, but I'll do that.